This is Ni'ima Novetsky from TanaStudy.com. In our last class, we looked at Vayikra chapter 21 and the first set of laws relating to the holiness of priests, laws of mourning, marriage, and blemishes. In today's class, we'll continue with the rest of these laws as we explore chapter 22. The chapter divides into two main parts and then an appendix. Each starts with a new opening, Vayidaber Hashem Amosha Lemor, clearly marking each section as its own unit. The first section, verses 1 through 16, speaks of the laws of eating kachim, eating the portions of various holy offerings which were dedicated to the priest. According to Chazal, the laws focus primarily on trumot, the portion of one's grains that were given to the priest and served as their main source of income during those weeks when they were not in service in the Mikdash. Unlike other kachim, other holy offerings, trumot could be eaten throughout the land and not just in the realm of the Mikdash or Yerushalayim. As such, the Torah needs to especially warn that there are nonetheless laws which govern its eating. This section subdivides with verses 1 through 9 warning the priests that they may not eat of these holy offerings while impure, and verses 10 through 16 warning non-priests not to eat of them at all. Each of these subsections ends with a similar concluding sentence, warning the priests not to profane the offerings lest they bear the burden of sin, and concluding with the phrase, because I am the Lord who made them holy. This, of course, is the same phrase that we saw repeat throughout chapter 21. The second section of the chapter, verses 17 through 25, focuses on animals who are blemished, prohibiting bringing them as sacrifices. As opposed to the first section, which was addressed only to the Kohanim, this one is addressed also to lay Israelites, since they will be the ones bringing the sacrifices. Finally, the last section of the chapter, verses 26 through 33, includes several tangential laws relating to sacrifices as a whole. It has a similar conclusion to the earlier units, reading, Do not profane by name, and I will be sanctified within Israel. I am Hashem who sanctifies you. Before we move into the individual verses of our chapter, I wanted to pause and discuss these concluding phrases as I think people often throw around two terms which emerge from them. The concept of Chilul Hashem, profaning Hashem's name, and the concept of Kiddush Hashem, sanctifying Hashem's name. We often think of these as a pair, one obligation and one prohibition. Yet, though it's easy to find a source for the prohibition, as we saw in this chapter and in the previous ones, many specific laws are accompanied by a warning, do not profane my name. And verse 32 that we just read could easily be understood as a general directive not to do so. It's not nearly as easy, though, to find a source obligating us to sanctify Hashem's name. Throughout our chapter, for example, the words is contrasted not with but rather I am Hashem who makes you holy. Hashem speaks multiple times about sanctifying the nation, but never does he actively state in the imperative form that man must sanctify God. And in fact, it's an important question to think about. What would it mean for a person to sanctify God anyway? How is that possible? How can a human make Hashem holy? That said, the verse which is often cited as the source for the obligation to sanctify Hashem's name is the one we just read. The phrase, B'nei Tashti B'nei Israel. But as we just saw, 
this source is far from a simple one. First, the phrase is formulated in the passive rather than the imperative, as if it is merely the consequence of a previous action. In addition, its placement in our chapter, right after a whole unit dealing with priestly laws, suggests that it's aimed at them specifically, and not at Am Yisrael as a whole. And as we just said, it's not all that different from verses throughout the previous chapters, which were couched in similar language and also speak of sanctification, but are not considered a command. This phrase, and the verse as a whole though, does stand out in two respects. First, at least means that Hashem, rather than Am Yisrael, will become Kadosh. Second, the phrase is preceded by the general instruction, and you shall keep my laws. And it closes with the additional, who took you out of Egypt, perhaps allowing for a connection to a broader audience than the priestly class itself. As a result of these various issues, not all agree regarding what our verse is commanding, if anything at all. And even those who posit that it refers to sanctifying God do not agree on what that entails and how one accomplishes that. Let's look at a few takes on the issue. We'll start with those, like Ibn Ezra and Abarbanel, who assume that the verse is not commanding anything at all, but is more simply describing the consequences of priestly actions. Both Ibn Ezra and Abarbanel assume that the verse serves to conclude the preceding section of priestly laws and is simply saying that proper observance will result in Hashem's name being sanctified. According to them, our verse is not all that different than the other similar concluding sentences throughout this section of Sefer Vayikra. One must still ask, though, practically, what does it mean that Hashem's name is sanctified by a priestly observance of mitzvot? Abarbanel implies that Hashem is sanctified by the nation's recognition of His glory. Proper priestly conduct leads the rest of the nation to honor and fear Hashem. The priests don't somehow make Hashem more kadosh, as He is already perfect, but they allow His kedushab to be recognized by more people. A second approach to our verse maintains that despite the passive formulation, the verse is a general commandment which obligates people to behave in a manner which will sanctify God's name. Rambam points to two ways in which this can be accomplished. If a person behaves in a way that leads others to praise him, such as his having a pleasant demeanor, good manners, or speech, he thereby sanctifies Hashem's name because he has led others to glorify God. Sanctification can be internal as well. If a person observes Hashem's commandments purely out of love, without an ulterior motive, Rambam says Hashem will be sanctified. Even though no one else is coming to recognize Hashem's glory, the person himself is declaring God Kadosh. Rambam assumes that the prohibition of Chilul Hashem is simply the flip side of the coin. Desecration of Hashem's name would include sinning purely to spite or anger God, behaving in a way which brings disgrace to Hashem, or perhaps general negligence and observance. Rav Hirsch emphasizes how the greater the Tamit Chacham, the greater the potential that his actions might cause Achilol Hashem. Since people look at him as a representative of Hashem's Torah and values, if he veers even slightly from a life of morality, honesty, acts of kindness and the like, and obviously if he commits more egregious sins, there is a danger that people will get the wrong impression of what Torah and Hashem stand for. A third approach, and probably the most well-known understanding of our verse, comes from the Gemara in Bavli Sanhedrin 74, 
which speaks of martyrdom and the various situations in which one is mandated to forfeit one's life to avoid transgressing commandments. As the context of our verse has nothing to do with martyrdom, people who understand the verse in this manner struggle to explain the placement of the command. Some have suggested that the context of sacrifices provides the answer. The juxtaposition of our verse to those commands at the end of the chapter which relate to sacrifices teaches that though animal sacrifices generally substitute for human sacrifice, there are still certain exceptional circumstances in which the Torah demands the actual sacrifice of human life for Hashem's honor. Not all agree, though, regarding which exact situations and for which commandments one must forfeit one's life. Many maintain that the command only speaks of the need to forfeit one's life when asked to transgress a, cup, a commandment in public. As the verse says, and I will be sanctified in the midst of Israel. This suggests that sanctification of Hashem relates to his glorification by others, and thus by definition requires witnesses. Rambam and his Mishnah Torah goes further to also include the sins of idolatry, illicit relations, and murder, even without witnesses. Rambam might suggest that the phrase Betoch B'nai Israel describes who is obligated rather than who must be present. According to this view, sanctification of Hashem might be an internal rather than an external act. A person sanctifies God by his individual recognition of the primacy of Hashem's commandments and his valuing them over his own life. Rabbi Shmuel goes in the opposite direction, limiting the obligation to the sin of idolatry in a public setting. This position might view sanctification as a declaration of faith, in which case the narrowing of the scope of martyrdom to idolatry is logical. To summarize, we have seen three different approaches to the verse those who suggest that it is not a command, but simply the consequence of priestly observance of mitzvot, those who understand it as a command to behave in a way which will sanctify Hashem, and finally, those who relate it to martyrdom. With that, let's move into the actual verses of the chapter, those laws whose observance will lead to sanctification and whose transgression will profane. As we mentioned, the chapter opens with the laws of eating kudshim in verses 1 through 16. Verse 1. Tell Aaron and his sons to separate themselves from the holy things of the children of Israel, which they make holy to me, that they may not profane my holy name. I am Hashem. The verse uses the language, Yinazru, familiar to us from the institution of Nazir, someone who vows to separate themselves from wine, haircuts, and defilement of the dead. Here too, the verb means to separate. Hashem tells the priests that despite their positions, there are certain situations in which they too must separate themselves from eating of sacrifices. They should not think that their status as priests means that all of the Kodshim brought to them as gifts from B'nai Israel can be eaten as they wish. Verse 3 elaborates. Tell them, if any of your seed throughout your generations approaches the holy things, which the children of Israel make holy to Hashem, having his impurity on him, that soul shall be cut off from before me. I am Hashem. 
The next couple of verses specify the types of impurities referred to. Verse 4. Ish ish mizera aharon v'hutsarua ozav v'kodashim lo yochal arashevitar. Whoever is struck with tzarat or has an impure bodily secretion, he shall not eat of the holy things until he is clean. These two types of impurities may last a long time and not always for the same amount of time. For example, depending on the progression of one's tzarat, one may be impure for different amounts of days. So the verse only says that the priest may not eat until he is pure, without specifying a specific time until he is able to do so. The rest of the verse then continues to other cases of impurity, which last only for a day. Someone who touched a person or object which had been defiled by the dead. Or someone who secreted semen. Or anyone who has touched one of the creepy things which defile. This refers to the corpses of eight specific creeping animals listed in Vaikra 11 including several types of lizards, weasels, or rats. Or if he comes into contact with any individual who is himself impure and who defiles through touch. For example, touching one who has tzarat defiles the person who touched him as well. All of these situations, we are told, cause impurity until evening. Verse 6, the person that touches these things shall be unclean until the evening and shall not eat of the holy things unless he bathe himself in water. When the sun sets, he shall be clean. And afterwards he shall eat of the holy things because it is his bread. The Kohen is impure until evening. He must ritually immerse himself and only after the sun sets may he eat. The verse ends with an explanatory statement, because it is his bread. It's not clear, though, what this is coming to explain. According to Rav David Hoffman, the verse is telling us why Kohanim are allowed to eat of Kachim in general, because this is their livelihood and food. In contrast, according to Rabag, it comes to explain a certain leniency with regard to a priest who has become impure through tzarat or defiling bodily secretions. Normally, one who is defiled in this manner is not considered totally pure until the condition has cleared, the necessary time has passed, and not only have they immersed themselves, but they have also brought a necessary sacrifice. In order to eat of kachim, which are burnt on the altar, the priest does indeed need to meet all of these purification requirements. But with regards to the eating of truma, which is not burnt on the altar, the law is lenient, and once the sun has set and he is ritually immersed, he may actually eat of truma even if he has not yet brought an atoning sacrifice. The reason given in the verse is kilach mohu. The truma, more than any portion of sacrifices which are burnt on the altar, served as the priest's source of livelihood and food. As he only worked in the Mikdash several weeks a year, the rest of the time he would subsist only on the trumot. Verse 8 is only tangentially related to our unit, speaking not about kodshim, but rather about eating other objects which might serve, might serve to defile the priest. The verse warns the Kohen not to eat nevilot or trifot, animals who die on their own with improper slaughter or who were killed by another wild animal. This is prohibited to a regular Israelite as well, as we saw earlier in Sefer Vayikra. 
It's possible that as we iterated to the priest in this context to highlight their need to remain pure. The unit concludes, Bishamuat mishmarti, Velois ualavchet umetuvo, ki halaluhu, anihasham mikadisham. They shall therefore follow my requirements, lest they bear sin for it and die therein, if they profane it. I am Hashem who sanctified them. When speaking about the laws of purity as a whole, the Rambam suggests that perhaps, that perhaps one of the benefits of the law is that they ensure that one is not to take the Mikdash for granted. As one who is impure may not enter the Mikdash, he comes to appreciate what he cannot have. Distance makes the heart grow fonder. This might be especially true for Kohanim who are in the Mikdash much more often than the average Israelite and who have a portion in the sacrifices. If things were never inaccessible to them, it is likely that they would start to take their privileges for granted. Being impure, though not a desired state, at least has what to benefit. The next set of verses warn non-priests not to eat from the kachin and delineate who within the priest's household is or is not allowed to do so. The unit opens with a general declaration, the whole zar lo yuchal kodesh, any stranger, meaning any non-priest, may not eat kachin. The verse continues with three cases of either strangers or family members who have an in-between status, temporary members of the home, slaves, and married daughters. The verses clarify what the law is with regard to each. Toshav kohen v'sachir lo yochal kodesh. Those who live temporarily by the priest and those who are a hired hand may not eat of the kodesh. Even though these people have a connection to the priest and might even be living in his home, since the relationship is only temporary, they are not considered part of his household and may not partake of the Kodesh. Verse 11. In contrast, a slave of the priest and any born to him may eat of his bread. As the priest is responsible for, as the priest is responsible for providing them with food, he may give to them of his trumot. One may learn from this verse that obviously then, even though the Torah never said so, the priest's own family and children may also eat of his kachim. What though about a married daughter who has gone to live with her husband's family? Verse 12 teaches, Uvat kohen If a priest's daughter is married to an outsider, she shall not eat of the heave offering of the holy things. Once married, the woman becomes part of her husband's family and is supported by him, and thus only eats what he may eat of. Verse 13. But if a priest's daughter is a widow or divorced, or divorced and has no child and is returned to her father's house as in her youth, she may eat of her father's bread but no stranger shall eat any of it. Torah recognizes that if a daughter of a priest who married is then divorced or widowed without children of her own, she will likely move back to her father's house, as otherwise she will be without support and food. But if she can no longer eat of her father's holy food, she'll be stuck. And so the Torah teaches that in such a situation, she may once again eat of the truma. Chazal, however, explained that she may no longer eat of the Kohen's portion of the Shlemim offerings. The next verse dictates what a non-priest must do if he accidentally ate from the Kodesh. For example, if he did not know that a certain portion of grains was designated as truma. Verse 14. 
ויאסף חמישתו עליו, ונתן לכהן את הקודש. He must give the priest the worth of the truma and other grains, and add a fifth. Finally, the unit concludes, ולא יחללו את קדשי בני ישראל, את אשר ירימו להשם. The priest shall not profane the holy things of the children of Israel, which they offer to Hashem. והסיעו אותם עוון אשמה באכלם את קדשיהם, כי אני השם מקדשם. And so cause them to bear the iniquity that brings guilt when they eat their holy things, for I am Hashem who sanctifies them. With this, we move to the second section of our chapter, the laws of blemished animals. We spoke at length in our last class about why a blemished priest may not serve. While that prohibition is troubling to some, as it seems somewhat discriminatory, the idea that one should bring a whole unblemished animal as a sacrifice is somewhat self-explanatory and intuitive. Of course you would want to bring a present to Hashem from the best that you have. Just as you don't serve a distinguished or even a regular guest on a chip plate or give someone a present that is broken, so too you don't give to Hashem a maimed or otherwise broken animal. Sacrificing a blemished animal sends a message of disrespect, as if you did not care what you offered Hashem and gave to him from the first animals you happened to find, or even worse, from that which you did not want for yourself. This idea is probably most blatant in Sefer Malachi, where the prophet chastises the priest for degrading and despising Hashem's table. When the priest questioned how they have done so, the Navi replies, The Chitagishun Iver Lizboach Einra, when you offer the blind for sacrifice, is it not bad? And when you offer the lame and sick, is it not bad? Present it now to your governor. Will he be pleased with you? Will he be accepting of you? Apparently, in the Navi's time, offerings were regularly brought from the blind and sick and lame. Though people had whole sheep in their flock, they preferred to keep those for themselves and give to Hashem that which they didn't want, degrading Hashem's altar. Hashem points out that they would never dream of bringing such an offering to their governor, so they should not think twice, so they should think twice about offering such animals to God. Our verses thus direct, Daber el Aharon ve'el banav ve'el kol b'nei Yisrael, v'amarta alehem, ish ish mi beit Yisrael u'min hager b'Yisrael, ashir kriv korbano l'chol nidrehem u'l'chol nidvotam, Anyone who brings an offering, whether it be to fulfill a vow or a voluntary offering, which is being offered as a burnt offering, an ola to Hashem, that you may be accepted, you shall offer a male without blemish of the bills of the sheep or of the goats. But whatever has a blemish that you shall not offer, for it shall not be acceptable for you. These verses speak of bringing an ola as either a neder or a nidava. Chazal distinguished between the two, defining a neder as one who says, Hare alai ola, who makes a general vow to bring any ola offering without designating a specific animal that will be sacrificed. A nidava, in contrast, is when one says, Hare ze ola, designating a specific animal. The difference would be if something happened to the animal. In a case of a general vow, a neder, one would not have to bring a re- one would have to bring a replacement, since your obligation to bring a sacrifice still stands. While in the case of a nidava, where you had singled out the specific animal, if he dies, you are now exempt, so it's impossible to fulfill your promise. The next verses speak of bringing a korban shlamim rather than an olah. 
telling us that they too must be unblemished. Since the Korban Shlamim has a lower level of holiness as in, and is eaten by the person bringing it, one might have thought that it would not matter if it is blemished. The Torah thus emphasizes that it too must be whole. The Ish Kiakriv Zavach Shlamim Lashem, the Fale Neder Olinzava, Babakar Uvatson, Tamimiya Liratson Komum Loyabo. Whoever offers a sacrifice of peace offerings to Hashem to accomplish a vow, or for a free will offering of the herder of the flock, it shall be perfect to be accepted. No blemish shall be therein. The next few verses list the various types of defects. Averet o shavur o charut, blind or broken or maimed, o yabele. According to many, this refers to some type of a defect in the eye, according to others, a wart. O garav o yalefet, or festering or having a running sore. Lo takrivu ila lahashem, v'ishel lo tifnumihem al hamizbeach lahashem. You shouldn't offer these tashem, nor make an offering of fire by them on the altar tashem. Verse 23 continues, V'shor v'seth sarua v'kalut nidava ta'aseoto, u'l'neder lo yiratzeh. According to some understandings, this verse speaks of a bull or lamb who has either an elongated or truncated limb. According to the simple sense of the verse, such an animal can be brought as a nidava, but not as a nether. However, it's not clear why by these defects in particular, and not others, there's a distinction between a nether and a nidava. It's perhaps this question, at least in part, which leads Chazal to reinterpret the verse and suggest that really all such defected animals are banned from bring, being offered on the altar. In our verse, a nedavah refers to a donation to the temple's upkeep, while a neda refers to a sacrifice. Animals with these particular blemishes may be brought to be used in general in the Mikdash, but not as sacrifices. Ramban attempts to root this in the simple sense of the verses by bringing numerous proof texts where the language of nedavah is used in reference to the temple's upkeep specifically. Moreover, he points out that the verse says ta'aseoto and not ta'krivoto. Verse 24 continues with more defects. Uma'uch v'chatut v'natuk v'charut lo ta'krivu l'Hashem uva'artachem lo ta'asu. That which has its testicles bruised, crushed, broken, or cut, you shall not offer ta'ashem. Neither shall you, do, shall you do thus in your land. And verse 25 ends the unit by sharing that even foreigners may not bring blemished animals. Even a foreigner may not bring a blemished animal. The final section of our chapter is basically an appendix containing three more laws relating to sacrifices. Verses 26 and 27 read, Hashem al Moshe Shor o chesed o ez ki yivaleid, v'hayashiv at yamim tachad imo, umiyom hashmini v'hala yiratzel korban ishev Hashem. This verse mandates that one may not bring an animal as a sacrifice until they are at least eight days old. Such an animal is referred to by Chazal as mechusarizman, lacking in days. This prohibition has been understood in two different ways. According to some, and it, it's an extension of the laws of blemishes just discussed. An animal who is not yet eight days old is considered unfinished. He is underdeveloped and thus like a blemished animal, not tamim, not whole. It's not even clear if he will survive, and as such, it's not befitting to bring him as a gift to Hashem. Others, though, picking up on the phrase, and seven days he shall be under his mother, suggest that a verse is meant to teach us mercy. 
in the first week of its life, when the baby animal is still, still totally under the care of its mother, it would be cruel to separate the two. The next law also refers to a mother, animal, and child, prohibiting one from slaughtering a mother and son on the same day, be it for a sacrifice or in preparation for eating. Whether it is a cow or sheep, you should not kill it and its young both in one day. This law too has been understood by some to relate to the attribute of mercy. Rambam says that the prohibition is to safeguard against the possibility that one might kill the child before the mother and in so doing cause her anguish at the loss. Others, like Ramban, stress that the action is not really done for the animal, but to instill kindness in humans. Rav Hirsch goes in a slightly different yet connected direction, pointing out that by nature, animals are generally selfish creatures. The one instance where they look past their own welfare, though, is in the mother's caring for her offspring. In this, too, they have a spark of humanity. It is to remind of this humanity, this caring for others, and how we must always live by such a trait that we not kill the two on the same day. The last law of the chapter relates not to sacrificing animals in their proper time, but to eating the sacrifice in its mandated time frame. Verses 29 and 30. When you sacrifice a sacrifice of thanksgiving to Hashem, you shall sacrifice it so that you may be accepted. It shall be eaten on the same day. You shall leave none of it until the morning. I am Hashem. Earlier in chapter 19, we learned about regular peace offerings, which must be eaten in two days. The thanksgiving offering has a shorter time frame, just one day. Some have suggested that there is a lesson to be learned about caring for and giving to the other in this mitzvah as well. By obligating that a person finish the sacrifice in one day, the Torah is basically ensuring that one invite others to share in his offering, for that is the only way that it would be possible to finish it all in such a short time frame. The Torah teaches that when we express thanksgiving, it's proper to include others in our happiness. If we have what to be happy for, we should try and share of it to make others happy. Finally, the chapter ends with the verses we spoke about in the beginning of this year speaking about the sanctification of Hashem. Ushmartem mitzvotai vasitem otam ani Hashem. Veluta chalalu et shem kodshi v'niktashti betoch b'nei Yisrael ani Hashem mekadishchem. Hamotzi etchem i'aret mitzrayim liot lachem lelokim ani Hashem. Therefore you shall keep my commandments and do them. You shall not profane my holy name, but I will be made holy among the children of Israel. I am Hashem who makes you holy, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am Hashem. Our next class will open up chapter 23 and its discussion of the various holidays.